Now we've got a reading, quite a long reading actually, from Hebrews chapter 11, and Judith's going to come and read it for us. Thanks, Judith. You can put your faith into uh, action, hoping that I get to the end of it. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11, faith in action. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what, was, what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel bought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he, commended as righteous. he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. 
By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched round them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed spy, the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Thanks, Judith. Long reading. People of faith, some of them uh, were unsung heroes. Some of them were very much sung about. We thought about a few of them today, haven't we, already with Elizabeth's talk about Moses and Abraham and Noah. Well remembered. So let's, let's think of it for a moment about faith. The, the word, I just got, there's a lot of information on this slide, so you don't need to sort of um, boggle at it. The Greek word is pistis and related verbs that are based on that, that, that word. 
And we, we might think that the, the, the way the Bible uses the word faith or thinks about faith, it, uh, there are lots of different aspects of it. For example, there's saving faith. By grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, the gift of God. Saving faith. We might have trust or faith in something or someone. And there, there are various scriptures that uh, sort of hold up that idea by by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly, if you believe, if you like, the word I preach to you. You believe there is one God. Even the demons believe that, uh, says um, James. Abraham believed the Lord. He believed what God had said to him. The enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. We'll come back to that idea. Uh, some, some places in the Bible where that verse is quoted, it says the righteous will live by faith. In Habakkuk, it says, by his faithfulness. At least the NIV translates it that way. And then there's more. There's what you might call adventurous or creative faith. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God, says Jesus. Uh, our ongoing commitment to Christ. Uh, but I pray for you, Simon, that your faith not, may not fail. And then we, we might talk about the faith, the substance of what we believe. My true son in the faith, says Paul to Timothy a couple of times in the Timothy letters. And then this idea of faith and faithfulness. There's a handful of verses where, uh, which the, the pundits are debating about, even as we speak, whether the word should be translated faith or faithfulness. And there's an example in Galatians 3.22, what was promised being given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And you'll find some versions use that word, and others talk about the faith of Jesus Christ which is a kind of repetition then, because uh, uh, it might be given to those who believe. So you've got a repetition of the idea of faith. But uh, I think I prefer that faithfulness idea, which we saw in Habakkuk. So all kinds of different aspects of faith. And so when we come to Hebrews and think about faith, that's just to turn it back on again, sorry. Um, we'll think about that in a few moments. Let's sing a, another song as we come to uh, the Word of God, as we come to think about what the Word of God is saying to us today. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your Holy Word. Stand to sing if you can. Remain seated if you prefer.
noticed when um, Judith was reading that. I'd underlined some of the words in the text. And uh, we'll come to those in a moment. So we've been thinking a lot about faith and the way uh, the word or idea is used in quite a few different ways in the Bible. But here in Hebrews, the writer was concerned most of all with a conviction of the truth and belief in the importance of the Christian way of life and our commitment to it, or their commitment to it, the people he was writing to. So the kind of faith he was writing about was the faith and trust that forms the basis of our behavior and our actions. He was writing to a group of believers who were in danger of abandoning their Christian commitment and reverting to their former Judaism. Hence the title of the letter, Two Hebrews. We're not absolutely sure why they felt like that. Perhaps they felt that the once-for-all sacrifice for sin that Jesus had made for us on the cross wasn't enough to cover their ongoing sinfulness. At least in their former Judaism, there had always been the opportunity to offer sacrifices whenever repentance was called for. They could bring their sacrifices to the temple and they would receive assurance of forgiveness there and then. It says so. And on the Day of Atonement each year, all the sins of all the people were covered and forgiven. So if they did something wrong, they knew that in Judaism, the opportunity for repentance and forgiveness was always available through the sacrificial system of the temple. But with Christianity, it was different. Perhaps they didn't realize that all their sins, past, present and future, had been atoned for in the cross of Christ. And there was... Now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as Paul puts it. Maybe they just didn't feel forgiven, especially for sins committed since they'd been baptized. That certainly became a reason for people getting baptized on their deathbeds later on in the church. But they were wrong. And their faith in Jesus needed to be be re-educated and reignited and restored. And what he was arguing is that if only their faith was well placed, then they wouldn't stray from the truth, but would cling more firmly to Christ and his church. And the kind of faith Hebrews was writing about, therefore, was the faith that would cause his readers to take action and live by. And so Hebrews, whoever he was, gives us a long list of those who did persevere in faith despite all the obstacles set before them. And they were commended, it says. That's one of the words that was underlined. It doesn't say by whom, except in verse 4, where it says that God commended or spoke well of Abel's offerings. And that word commended is interesting. That reminds me of somebody at Waterbeach who used to say, Robin, these things might interest you, but... So bear with me. So I hope you noticed those five times in our reading in Hebrews 11 where I'd underlined the words, the words on the screen. And there seems to be a link between that word, because it's all the same word, and the fir- although it's translated differently in different places, the first word, and the first word in the next chapter, chapter 12, which talks about a great cloud of witnesses. You see, the word commended is a related word. The witnesses of chapter 12, verse 1, is the Greek word from which we get our English word martyr. 
But originally it didn't mean that, at least not in the way we normally use the word martyr today. In other words, someone who suffers or is put to death because of their commitment to some cause or other, and in particular because of their Christian faith and witness. It did come to mean that, particularly as many Christians lost their lives under persecution in the early years of the, of the Christian church, and even today in various parts of the world. But originally the word meant one who bears witness. In other words, the witness not only saw or experienced something, but more particularly spoke about what they had seen or witnessed. The Greek word can mean one who sees or witnesses an incident, but the usual meaning is to do with one who testifies about what they have witnessed. They didn't keep their experience to themselves, if you see what I mean. And that word in chapter 11 that is translated commended in the NIV literally refers to someone who is spoken well of. In other words, it has been testified of them that they have done well in some way or other. And that's how it relates to our martyr word, one who testifies or bears witness about something they have seen or experienced. So that great cloud of witnesses isn't just a, a crowd of spectators cheering us on in the Christian race of life, although that's often the way we hear it preached, isn't it? They're not just watching us, but rather those witnesses are the people from chapter 11 who have experienced God's commendation and perhaps the commendation of history in general. They've been spoken well of and they're telling us, they're bearing witness, they're shouting out to the fact that faith works, that their commitment to God's promises and calling have never let them down. Indeed, their experience is that God has been faithful and reliable. So far as they were concerned, God was always faithful. And, though and through their faithful obedience, they are now able to tell us and encourage us to trust God too. So let's go back into chapter 11 and look briefly at those five places where that related Greek word crops up. First in verse 2, this is what the ancients were commended for. And then in verse 4, Abel was commended as righteous, and God spoke well, same word, of his offerings. Verse 5, Enoch was commended as one who pleased God. And finally, in verse 39, at the end of the chapter, Hebrews writes, these were all commended for their faith. The link with our witness word is perhaps clear in some of the older versions. Uh, the, old, the good old King James Version, for example, refers to the elders obtaining a good report in verse 2 and obtaining witness in verse 4. Very literal translation there. Enoch had this testimony in verse 5 and verse 39 refers to these all having obtained a good report. It reminds me of school days, doesn't it? In other words, what was reported or said or written of them was positive and good. And so they became those who had obtained witness. And I believe Hebrews is referring to them when he writes about the great cloud of witnesses at the beginning of the next chapter. But what had these witnesses done in order to obtain commendation so that they could encourage us? Basically, they put their trust in something or things that they couldn't see or prove, like the fact of creation. Or believing that serving God would reap some kind of reward. Or like Abraham, sensing somehow that God would make good his promises to him. Not so much the promise of a son and heir, uh, which, we did, which he did see, of course. But the faith that even though he was told to sacrifice that one son, Isaac, 
God was still able to make good his promise of vast numbers of offspring through Isaac. And the sense that God was promising something more, far more magnificent and glorious for them all. Verse 16 says, instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And that's an amazing verse when you think about some of the characters that get mentioned. And Jephthah immediately springs to mind. And we, of course, inherit that promise, which none of those people ever saw fulfilled in their lifetimes, and neither shall we, actually. Scripture teaches that by faith, the quality of faith that Abraham had, we together with him are his seed or his offspring through faith in Christ. And one day all of us who trust in Jesus will inherit that promise in glory. That's what Paul meant when he said we have been predestined to adoption. Sons who will inherit one day. So there are different types and styles of faith that we've seen that. But the kind we're interested in today is the faith that builds lifestyle. The faith that takes action on what is believed. But it is faith in something that we cannot see or prove. The Bible talks about walking by faith and not by sight. So in this case, it's not so much the stuff we believe or the shade of belief in terms of our theology. It's more to do with what causes us to be and do our understanding of God's will for our lives and our actions that causes us to take risks with our lives. Risks in terms of worldly reckoning at any rate. It's not a risk if you're a Christian. There are all sorts of stories alluded to here in Hebrews 11, some of which we know little or nothing about. The unsung heroes. I know there are some very much sung heroes that we've talked about. For instance, the story of the person who was sawn in half, or persons, it says more than one, doesn't it? Isn't found in scripture, but there is a tradition that Isaiah was sawn in half under the orders of the evil king Manasseh, a tale that was referred to in Jewish writings before the time of Jesus, but which evidently was known to the author of Hebrews. But there are others, some surprising, and others that we might not have thought much about, like Jephthah, for example. He trusted God for victory. But he made a very rash promise, a vow to God, and therefore had to sacrifice his only daughter in order to make good his promise to God. And that's a very conflicting story, isn't it? And there's Rahab, the prostitute who had very little idea probably about Israel's God, but she did acknowledge him in her exchanges with the two spies who visited her at Jericho. In, in Joshua chapter 2. And in verse 8 there, she tells them that she knows that the Lord has given the land to Israel. How does she know that? You know, the thing that strikes me most forcibly about all this is that when we think about all the people who are named in chapter 11, I wonder how much they really knew about God. Far less than we do, I would think. I'm certain of it, actually. And yet they still trusted what they did not fully know. I suppose the prime example and the person about whom Hebrews writes the most is Abraham. I think his story should be reasonably familiar to most of us. He was definitely not unsung. But he felt God's call to leave his home of Ur of the Chaldeans 
in what today is southern Iraq, quite right, <laughs> and journey north and west around the Fertile Crescent, skirting the desert of northern Syria as we know it today, and then southward into the Egyptian district of Canaan. He didn't know where he was going, but he nevertheless had that inner certainty that that's what God was calling him to do. He became the model pilgrim for us today. He had no permanent dwelling. He wasn't able to build up a property empire or a huge bank balance. He was undoubtedly rich as an itinerant farmer and herdsman, but there was nothing permanent or secure in the way he lived. And wherever he went, he had to make treaties with those who owned the land, uh, and particularly when it came to securing water supplies and digging wells for his own water. But, says Hebrews, he had in mind something far better and more permanent that God was guiding him to. I wonder if any of that resonates with us today. Are we aware that God has promised us something far better and more permanent than anything in this life. And do we allow that awareness to motivate and guide the way we live and behave? How security conscious we are. How we depend on the uncertainty of riches or our pensions or our benefits to see us through, especially if we haven't got very much to start with. And yet, is that what God calls us to place our trust in? If that were the case, why do you think Jesus says that we should pray for our daily bread? And do we have that kind of hope for the future that Abraham had? It says he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Not the city of Babel or Babylon, which is mentioned in Genesis ever before we encounter Abraham, but a city that God has founded for us. Would that be true of us today? Do we have that kind of hope? I've been doing quite a bit of reading and writing recently about heaven. And that came about in part because I once asked our home group, this is quite a while ago now, so those in our home group probably forget it, have forgotten this. I asked them what their hope was. Guess what kind of answers I got. <laughs> Interesting responses. More, but more about the weather and health and, and so much at all, not so much about what happens to us as believers when we die and leave this earthly life behind. I wonder what you would say if, we were to, if I were to ask you that question. What is your hope? Would it be about your faith in what God has promised for your future in glory? Being co-heirs with Christ because God has made us sons who will share his inheritance? Or would it be about the ups and downs of daily life in the here and now? God has promised us so much. And yet I think many Christians either don't think very much about that or don't allow it to govern their thinking and the way they live now. But it should, don't you think? Especially if life is hard or we experience so many disappointments and wrongs done to us. One day, all that is, all that is going to be sorted out and made good when Jesus comes back. But we allow ourselves to be dragged down into the mire of life's uncertainties and injustices, don't we? Do we? 
That was what drove these heroes of faith on, I think. God had promised them an inheritance. And it was that promise that motivated them, especially Abraham, and caused them to single-mindedly persevere through the ups and downs of this life. None of them could have known the half of what we can know as we read our Bibles today. But they were commended because they acted in the expectation that what God had promised, he would deliver. We've received the same promise. The promise of eternal glory in the presence of Jesus. A land which is perfect. No sin, no pain, no tears, and most of all, no death. We have been predestined to adoption. We shall inherit one day. And these mortal bodies that give us so much trouble, particularly as we get older, will be changed so that we shall have bodies like Jesus' resurrection body. Bodies perfectly fitted for heaven. Wouldn't that promise be enough to motivate and drive us on in our Christian lives? Think about the promise that God made to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son in their very old age. And then God's, com- God's command to Abraham to sacrifice that son of promise. The son through whom he had promised Abraham that there would be an enormous family descended from him through Isaac. I wonder how you and I would react to a situation like that. I hope first and foremost that you would ask yourself whether you had really heard from God or whether what you thought you had heard was right or not. Lots of Christians go off at half cock because they believe God told them to do something and actually he probably didn't. We've all seen it. There's a lot of false prophecy around today. We need to be very careful about it and and test what we think God is saying. Whenever we feel that God has told us to do something, what do we do? Well, we must test what we believe he has said. Probably by sharing it with a trusted Christian friend or church leaders. That's part of what church is for. And Christians who don't belong to a church, and there are some, we all know some, I think they're in particular danger of making that mistake. As it happens, Abraham himself didn't didn't even have that opportunity. In fact, he didn't tell anybody, not even Isaac, the cherished son who was going to die at his hand. But it wasn't so much the issue of child sacrifice, a practice of some of the surrounding nations, which would have been totally abhorrent to Abraham. But the fact that if he killed Isaac, as instructed by God, then God's promises could never be fulfilled of a vast progeny which would inherit the land and bless the rest of the world. Hard to penetrate what might have been going on in Abraham's mind. But he decided that come what may, he would obey the God who was up up to that point, who had up to that point, never let him down. So he, in simple faith, although I don't think there's anything remotely simple about it, actually, he did what God said. Or rather, he fully intended to do what God had told him to do. God was testing his faith. And when God does that, 
it's always hard. The testing, I mean, not the faith. I expect some of you have known that from your own experience. And I think it gets harder the longer we've been walking with the Lord. But it's about trusting and obeying because, as the song says, there's no other way. Faith is always a test, actually. Did I really hear from God? What if I've got it wrong? How can I really know? Well, actually, you can't. It's only in the trusting and obeying that you and I will discover whether it was all really real. And that applies to what I was saying about our hope of glory too. But you know, as we walk with God, we discover step by step that he can be trusted. He is faithful. And what he wants for us is that we grow more and more dependent on him. And I believe that he will only really test our faith when he knows we can be trusted to stick to him. Growing faith is what God is all about in our lives. That's why Jesus said what he did in Mark 4, 30. Again he said, what shall, I, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Picture of faith. Kingdom of God is about growth and growing. And the thing that God wants to see most of all in each one of us is growth in our capacity to trust him. When we became Christians, obviously our experience of God and his ways was limited. And we made all sorts of mistakes, didn't we? Like some of the people in Hebrews 11, including Abraham. But I believe God probably delighted, delights even in our mistakes, strange to say, because he knows that we can learn from them. And our faith can be deepened. Sometimes we make calamitous mistakes, horrendous mistakes. Like when Abraham thought God might fulfill his promise of a son and raise up progeny through another woman. Not his wife, but Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian slave girl. And I think he learned a very hard lesson through that mistake and the family friction that it brought about. Read it for yourselves, it's in Genesis 16. And we live with his mistake even today. As we look to the Middle East where the descendants of Ishmael, the, the son of Hagar, who have in the main adopted Islam, stand in opposition to the, the ancient people of God because they believe that God promised Abraham that his seed would be through Ishmael and not through Isaac. And all that creates a challenge for our faith, doesn't it? Even today. And evangelizing Muslims is the hardest thing. Almost as hard as evangelizing Jews, I should think. If only Abraham hadn't made that mistake. I wonder how different international politics would be today. But as faith grows in us, even if we have made horrendous mistakes, we can support those who waver. Whether younger believers or older saints who should know better. And it's that picture of the mustard tree. Those of us who are people of faith can and should support and encourage others.
just like that great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12 verse 1. Have you ever thought of yourself as being like that kind of person whose role in life is to encourage and support those who journey with you on faith's pilgrimage? That, in large measure, is what church is all about. Faith is the Christian way of life. There are no certainties. If there were, it wouldn't be faith, would it? But the reason why Hebrews wrote chapter 11 was to give those wavering Jewish background saints who were thinking about going back to their old Jewish ways, the evidence from scripture and history that would make them think again. They were being tempted to go back to what they thought of as certainties. But God calls all of his people, including you and me today, not to put our hope in things that we might think of as being certain, worldly things I mean. Or even as in their case, outmoded religious practices that, granted, God had ordained, true enough, but who had made them obsolete by Christ's sacrifice. God wants us to pin our hopes and trust in him, the one and only one who is utterly dependable, certain and faithful, and the one who has promised us glory. It's only as we get to know him better as we walk with him and allow him to share his life with us, as we share our lives with him, that the truth of verse 1 becomes true for us. The certainty of what we hope for and the certainty of what we cannot see, although not yet. God's whole purpose for you and for me is to transform us into the image of his beloved son. The greatest test of all as he works in us by his Holy Spirit, is his call on us to believe in him. To trust that what he says is true and trustworthy. And he wants that conviction of faith in his promises to motivate us in all we do and say for him until that day when he calls us to be with himself, when his promises will be fully fulfilled. On, the, on that day, he wants to be able to say to each one of us, well done, good and faithful servant. So that we, with all those mentioned in Hebrews 11, together with the innumerable hosts of others, will receive commendation, obtain witness, and move on into the wonderful fulfillment of all the promises he has made. That city which God has founded and built and in which he promises we have a part.